Welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you welcome Naomi? Anwar, Fab, Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Hello. Hello. Uh, welcome back to the Irish Passport with me, Naomi O'Leary. And me, Tim McInerney. And today we're going to be talking all about the Irish language, which you just heard there a moment ago. But before we get on to that, let's take a quick look at some of your emails about last week's special episode and our previous episode on the Irish border. We were really bowled over by the great positive feedback that you sent us last week. So a big thank you to all our listeners who took the time to get in touch. Absolutely. Podcasting is pretty new to us and we're learning new things every week. So your feedback is really helpful and really appreciated. So please keep it coming. Yep. And please do rate us and review us in SoundCloud, Facebook or iTunes as well and invite your friends because it makes a huge difference to get the word out. Okay, Tim, I think this first question is for you. It's from Robert in London. He said, as a politics graduate, I found the podcast interesting and educational. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Robert. Okay. And then he says, I hope you can explore the Scots-Irish thing a bit more and Mm -hmm. how it ties in with Celtic Rangers culture in Scotland, something I've always wondered about. Let's see. So the DUP, um, who we talked about in our last special episode, uh, are a pro-British unionist party in Northern Ireland. Many in this community, I mean, I I stress, of course, this is not true of everyone in the Protestant community by any means, uh, but many would not describe themselves as Irish at all. Hmm. So so instead, a lot of unionists will actually describe themselves as Scotch-Irish or Ulster-Scots which they understand as being a British identity. So it's basically an ethno-cultural descriptor. I would guess, I suppose, that most of the DUP uh, see themselves as belonging to this group. Ian Paisley, for instance, he's the guy who uh, founded the DUP. Uh, He was always adamant that he was not Irish. He called himself Scots-Irish, and for him that meant he was British. Right, but hang on, Tim, why Scots-Irish? What's the link with Scotland? Right, yeah, that's another good question. So, uh, well, a lot of the original British colonists in Northern Ireland actually came over from Scotland. Uh, And we also have to remember that Northern Ireland is actually super close to Scotland, physically. Like, you can actually see Scotland across the sea on a sunny day. Uh, Still to this day, the the Unionist community... uh, and indeed the nationalist community, have uh, close ties to Scotland. Lots of people go back and forth from Northern Ireland to Scotland all the time. Yes, it was interesting actually that one of the loyalists who um, I spoke to at that march in last week's episode had a distinct Glaswegian accent. Yeah, Um, sure. uh, There are, of course, Orange Order Lodges in Scotland as well. Okay, and that brings us on to Celtic and Rangers. So these are these two major football teams, that's football is in soccer, that are based in Scotland. Right, so this is where (laughs) it gets a little bit more messy. I'm sorry. Go on. Tim, give us, okay. give us the lowdown. Okay, so stay with me, right? So you have this deep cultural link between Protestants in Scotland and Protestants in Northern Ireland, uh, who consider themselves like first cousins, okay? Okay. And the Pro- 
Protestants in Northern Ireland spend centuries in various conflicts with the Irish nationalists on the rest of the island, who, who see them as occupiers, okay? Okay. Alright. Uh, but then, in the 19th century, when Ireland was hit by the Great Famine, a whole raft of Catholic Irish emigrants started flooding from the nationalist parts of Ireland into Scotland, looking for work. This is because Scotland is so physically close to Ireland. Uh, a lot of them ended up in Glasgow. Oh, right. So, this whole Northern Irish uh, cultural distinction and conflict was exported en masse to Glasgow. So, strange as it might sound, violence erupts from time to time in Scotland between Irish nationalists and British unionists. The violence has been particularly centred around two football teams, uh, the Glasgow Celtics, which are seen as representatives of Irish nationalists, and the Glasgow Rangers, uh, which represent unionism. And I suppose one of the reasons for this is that you, you get to wear your politics on your sleeve, quite literally. If you're wearing a, a jersey or a uniform or a signifier of one of these teams, everyone knows which side of the conflict you're on. That was quite a long answer, but I hope that it clarifies everything for uh, Robert in London, and thanks so much for your query. Okay, alright, so Naomi, I've, I've picked out a question for you too. Uh, this one comes in by email from John in Belfast. And he asked why we didn't focus more on the fact that Northern Ireland's regional ruling assembly is collapsed and has been since January. Okay, yes, this is something that we should definitely focus on and it's pretty relevant to today's podcast as well. So the devolved government in Northern Ireland, which is called Stormont, is one of the institutions that was set up to bring peace to Northern Ireland. And it can legislate uh, to a certain extent on on matters like health and education and so on, but not on things like defence and international policy or the post. Okay, so there's kind of a local government in Belfast and that's called the Assembly and like a super government in Westminster, which governs the whole UK. So the DUP, they sent representatives to Westminster, but in the meantime, the assembly has kind of fallen apart. The power sharing between the Nationalist Party Sinn Féin and the DUP had been strained for quite a while, but there was a huge scandal over the abuse of a renewable heat scheme in particular, Uh which caused the assembly to collapse. Anyway, it has remained broken down. Talks are actually restarting, possibly as we speak, to get it back up and running. But in the meantime, civil servants are acting as caretakers, so there isn't a ruling assembly in place. Indeed. There you go. Uh, John, who wrote in from Belfast, uh, thank you again for your question. Uh, If you listening have any questions or comments, drop us a line on our website via email or on Twitter. We love hearing from you. Okay, let's get back to the Irish language. Yeah, the Irish language, or Gaelga, as it's called in Irish. It's the official language of the Republic of Ireland, the third oldest written language in Europe, after Greek and Latin, and a subject that is guaranteed to raise passions, sometimes good, sometimes bad, if you bring it up with your Irish friends. Yeah, and it's something that people are often quite curious about, right? So it's spoken by quite a small number of people, so just under 2 million in Ireland, according to the most recent figures. And while more or less everyone in Ireland knows a little bit of the language at least, Sadly, it has been in a steady decline for the past few generations. It used to be a majority language in Ireland until the Great Famine in the mid-19th century, but this unfortunately saw massive numbers of Irish speakers either die from starvation or be forced to emigrate elsewhere. For a long time, the language was discouraged in Ireland, both by the Catholic Church and the British colonial administration, and its large-scale revival only began about 100 years ago, by which time most of the damage had been done. Today, it's spoken as a primary language only in pockets of the country, mostly on the West Coast. So if you don't live in Ireland, you probably haven't heard it very much or at all. 
Yeah, and people, funnily enough, often assume that the Irish language is just some dialectical form of English mm. or that it's just English with an Irish accent. Um, but of course, this couldn't be further from the truth, right? Yeah, I've, I've heard that assumption. Uh, of course, no, it, it's it's very different. Like I, you said, Irish is a very old language. It's hundreds of years older than English, actually. So there are very few linguistic links between the two of them. Uh, it's from the Celtic family of languages, so it's more closely related to, for example, the Breton language in France or the Welsh language or uh, Scots Gaelic most closely. And it actually even had its own alphabet until uh, relatively recently. You might you might have seen a few of those um, uh, figures on Irish pubs around the world because they make good graphic art now. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, that alphabet isn't really used anymore. But it has left the language with some pretty weird spelling, which I think uh, a lot of people might have encountered. If you've ever had to spell an Irish name, you'll probably have noticed this. So S-I-O-B-H-A-N is pronounced Siobhan. Or mm-hmm. uh, Saoirse, which is a, another Irish name, like Saoirse Ronan, the, the film star. Um, that's spelled S-A-O-I-R-S-E and so forth. Um, it's, it seems bizarre, I know, but it does have its own internal logic. you got to trust us. Yeah, it's funny because it doesn't even seem strange to me anymore. And I don't even realise that their pronunciation is counterintuitive until I meet someone who isn't familiar with them. And they think the name Owen is Eoin, for example. As it happens, Tim, we both have Irish names alongside our, I suppose, anglicised names. Most names in Ireland, as they are, were originally Irish and they were anglicised, so rendered into like a, an English-like spelling. Yeah, right. And in Irish, they, they mean stuff, you know, just like uh, English surnames. So so my name, McInerney, uh, also exists as McInerney, which is three very long words, uh, <laughs> which means in total, uh, son of the guy who sells land to people to build churches on. That's super specific. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So my name is um, O'Leary, but it's also Nilira. So Nilira is a bit more accurate because it means daughter. Ni means daughter as opposed to O or Mac, which means son. And the Lira part refers to someone who keeps cattle. And it's the name of an old Gaelic clan. So incidentally, both versions are actually valid in Ireland and you can use either when, whenever you want. I have to say, Tim, one of my favourite quirks that I like to tell people about Irish is that there's no word for either yes or no. You have to conjugate every verb into a positive or a negative. Yeah, this is a really funny one because in official documents then, for instance, if you have to vote, you can't vote yes or no. And since Irish is the official language of the Republic, uh, when people vote in a Republican election of any sort, they actually vote ta or Neil, which literally means it is or it isn't. And that's the closest that we could get, really, to yes or no. Speaking Hmm. of official documents, have you heard uh, that in the European Union, there is a huge investment right now into integrating Irish as an official language? Yeah, I did hear this. What's that about? Okay, so basically, in the European Union, of the 28 states, only the UK actually has English as an official language. So there are other Anglophone countries, obviously, Malta and Ireland, but they opted for their own traditional languages to be their official languages. So for Malta, it's Maltese, and for Ireland, it's Irish. What does that What does that really mean, uh, that a language is a country's official language in the EU? For all intents and purposes, it means a lot of translation of documents. So, for example, in 2015, the European Commission had 1.6 million pages of documents translated into English. Uh, So far, however, Irish really hasn't been properly enacted as an official language because it kind of takes so much to build from 
from nothing to the manpower that you need to uh, carry off such feats of translation and interpretation. They, they got a reprieve for a few years to allow a transition period. So this transition period is ending now, is that it? That's right. It's supposed to end in 2017. So according to a leaked European Parliament document, the planned budget expenditure is about 3.7 million euros, um, which given the number of Irish speakers is actually quite a lot. And they've so far this year listed 26 vacancies for Irish language speakers. Um, that's all according to reporting by Politico Europe, which is uh, a site that I sometimes write for. So there could be like a little community of Irish speakers living in Brussels soon enough then, which I suppose that would make it like a, a Brussels Gaeltacht. That's what we call Irish speaking communities, by the way. Uh, yeah, well, according to an Irish speaker I spoke to uh, there recently, there actually kind of is one in some respect. So it's not geographical in that it's a few streets or something, but there's a network of Irish speakers in Brussels already who essentially all know each other and meet up to speak Irish. So they're like translators and Irish language journalists and some MEPs. Like, for example, the Irish-speaking Sinn Féin representative, Leah Nirieda. In 2015, you know, she went on strike. So during Schacht in the Gaelga, yeah. which is like the week-long festival of Irish, she refused to speak any English in the European Parliament yeah. to protest the lack of Irish in the EU. I'm, I'm sure that raised a few eyebrows. Yeah, well, by all accounts, she's known as a fairly determined advocate of the language. Let's play some of that clip, actually. So this is my chat with Owen Keane. Um, he's a member of the Gaelga, or Irish-speaking community in Brussels. And uh, he spoke to me about... Uh, what that's like and his work as an Irish language reporter there. By the way, Tim, did you know that Irish speakers recently coined a term for Brexit? <laughs> You're joking. No, really. Okay, so there, as a contender, we had Sassamach. Sa- Sassamach? Yeah. Sassamach. Oh, I see. All right, like, oh, uh, to explain this for our listeners, uh, Sassamach is an English person, like a Saxon, and a mach means exit. So Saxon out, I suppose. Yeah, it's kind of rude and that (laughs) might be why it's the one that didn't end up in the dictionary which is probably for the best so um yeah Owen was telling me how the official word for Brexit was coined and the role of Irish in Brussels so I'm sitting here with Owen Keane and he's based in Brussels and fascinatingly he is one of the Irish speaking community here and we were just discussing how this is a new frontier really for the language. It's it's kind of the European Union is facilitating an internationalization of the language which is almost unprecedented. Would you would you say that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this the past few years of the European Union since Irish has been recognised as official language have really been a huge step forward for the language and for its community. It's as if we've finally been recognised on an international stage and even we've been afforded respect that sometimes we didn't get at home. Um, I think anyone anyone from Ireland would agree that Irish has had a bit of a chequered history in Ireland. Uh, so it's great to, to finally see that support and to finally give an option to people who, who love the language, who want to study the language um, to give them the opportunity to travel and to get good employment with the language as well. So how did you end up here as a Gael Gore in Brussels? I'm from Clare in the west of Ireland, which isn't an Irish language um, region. But um, like a lot of people, I did it in school and then I went to the Gaeltacht, which is the Irish language area of Ireland, every summer when I was uh, in my teens. And that's where I really um, developed my grow for the language or my love for the language. And then from then on, I studied it in university, again, working with it every summer. But I have to say that it's afforded me a lot of opportunities. I travelled to Canada to work over there as an Irish language tutor in the University of Ottawa. And then even when I came over here, I started working part-time with Radio Nguyen which is the Irish language national broadcaster. And what does your reporting involve? So mostly it's, it's, it's about what's going on in the European Union or on Tainthus Europach. A lot of it is about Brexit, Brat um, which is literally leaving, Britain leaving. 
Oh my God, I love that brat image. I haven't heard that one before. That's a really good example of like modernization, I suppose, of the language. So it has to be innovated all the time. And it, do you know how they came up with that term, brat imut? Um That's actually one of the shows, Cormac Kikuigan. It's a political show. It's on every day at five o'clock. And they were frustrated that there was no word for Brexit, that they always had to use Brexit. So they kind of came up with that themselves. Bratton being Britain, Imacht being leaving. But it's actually now been adopted and I think it's going to be in the, in the dictionary next year. So they're really proud of themselves. So well done to them. I love there how Owen slips in the odd Irish word, even when he's uh, speaking in English, uh, which is something that Irish people are want to do. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, whether they speak Irish uh, a lot or not. This this brings up a really interesting aspect of the language, actually, that's always interested me, that it's got a native version and it's got this very official version. Hang on, what do you mean by that? Even though it's the official language of Ireland, the vast majority of Irish speakers are actually second language learners, right? Uh, the, mm. the population of people who speak it as a first language is actually less than 80,000, so it's tiny. Uh, I got to see this firsthand in a strange way because I grew up just outside Galway City, which is right on the border of one of the biggest Gaeltsucks, um, or Irish-speaking regions on the island. We would have learned just outside this boundary that a computer in Irish was called a Riavara. Uh, but in the Gaeltucks, you know, they'd actually just use the English word um, computer, but they'd adapt it to Irish grammar and Irish syntax. So, you know, um, the computer would be on computer. That's how you would adapt an Irish word grammatically. Or even bicycle, you know, the official Irish word for bicycle is rohr, which most people who learn Irish w- would use. But in the Gaeltucks, certainly in Connemara, they, they'd say mowicycle, uh, which is, again, <laughs> uh, a, a grammatical adaptation of the English word uh, bicycle. I suppose in this, like, we're seeing the seams of the project to resurrect the language, which is really what it was, because it came so close to extinction. I mean, the only way of saving it is to teach people who haven't known it before. You know, inevitably, that does mean that you have a strange disconnect between those people who continue to use it as their native tongue, who continue to adapt it, and then the official version that gets written down in textbooks and so on. Um, And they're not necessarily the same thing. Um, I I wanted to mention, though, as well, Irish is enormously important as a national symbol. Its entire revival is tied up with political projects, and that's something that's ongoing. Actually, I mean, Irish was a kind of soft cultural weapon in the War of Independence, if you can look at it that way. One of the most important concepts uh, of the independence movement, and I'll, I'll talk a bit about this in my report later on, was to reclaim Irish culture. And a lot of people saw their own culture as something shameful. And the nationalist movement noticed that there was a lot of anxieties in particular about the language, right? Um, because Irish was unacceptable under the empire, but so was English, spoken with an Irish accent. Uh, so for the nationalist, it seemed a bit like the Irish had no acceptable language uh, and therefore no acceptable voice at all. I guess this is something that's quite common in general to, in attitudes towards minority dialects. So like even to this day, within Britain, for example, um, having, for example, like a Manchester accent or a strong regional accent can come with discrimination. You know, it's, it has a long history of um, kind of non-standard accents being represented as something ridiculous or incorrect. It's not only English either. Uh, where I live in France, of course, accents outside uh, the standard Parisian accents are, are, are ridiculed in just the same way. Uh, so you can see how for the nationalist movement, uh, reclaiming Irish was something really powerful. And you have to remember that at that stage, loads of people or loads more people still spoke Irish as their first language. Right. So from the very start, those who founded the Irish state, they intended it to be bilingual, right? 
Yeah, you can even see this in the Proclamation of the Republic, which declared an independent Ireland, uh, firstly during the 1916 Rising. And the first words on that proclamation are, of course, in Irish, to describe the country in Irish, Pablo uh, Nehéren. And immediately after the Irish Free State was established in 1922, Irish became compulsory for everyone who wanted to work in the public service. Irish was used for all important or ceremonial events, of course it still is, and all the government offices and titles are in Irish. Of, of course, like Taoiseach, the word that bedevils all foreign correspondence, or Tronishta. Right, that's a, an equivalent of Prime Minister or a Deputy Prime Minister, right? But uh, literally they mean a Taoiseach is a chief and a Tónista is a kind of chieftain, I suppose. <laughs> this extended to education as well, of course, famously. All public schools still have to teach the language. And if you want to be a teacher, you have to pass a test in the language, first and foremost. Um, and even Irish policemen, who are known officially, of course, in Irish, Garda Síochána, which means Guardians of the Peace, they had to pass a test in Irish until 2005. Uh, the mm. idea being that they were part of a society that was bilingual. Interestingly, like the one sphere where I've noticed that there is an integration of Irish and English is actually in journalism. So when I went to report the uh, election in 2016, the press conferences were completely bilingual. So the leaders of the Irish political parties had to be ready to take questions in both Irish and English because it was a bilingual press and they knew that they would be we asked questions in both. There's certainly moments of glee in the media when politicians struggle with their Irish. But uh, of course, all this stands in contrast to, to Northern Ireland, right? Uh, which is all almost the direct opposite. Once the border was drawn, Northern Ireland remained under the control of the UK. And in fact, the Unionist government that controlled the province, especially during the first 50 years, was very hostile to the language. Because, of course, they associated it with this anti-British rebel movement in the Republic. Of course, if you're a rebel, if you have a language that amounts to like a secret language that other people don't understand, that's actually quite useful in practical terms. So I understand that imprisoned IRA members adopted it so that they could communicate in jail without the guards understanding. Yeah, right. And, and one of the phrases that has become uh, pretty well known even in Britain is the Irish phrase for our day will come, which was a rallying cry for Republicans in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Chakyar Law is the phrase. It refers, of course, to the ultimate goal of a united Ireland. Mm. You know, I was speaking to an Irish language activist in Belfast this week and he was saying that there are some former Republican prisoners who are now politicians who deliberately use Irish as a secret language to wind up their unionist colleagues. And some unionists are extremely hostile to it. So, uh, for example, in Ballymena, the single Irish word, ishka, or water, had to be scrubbed off a manhole cover because a unionist <laughs> councillor complained, you know, that it, it was part of debriticization. God, right. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's far from being uh, depoliticized, anyway. Far, far from being depoliticized. And, you know, it actually had a huge role in the election this year, in 2017. Did you see, Tim, for example, the photographs of people who were going to vote dressed in crocodile costumes? Oh, yeah, yeah. What was that about? Well, let me tell you, that was all because of Irish. Arlene Foster, who's the leader of the biggest unionist party, said that she wouldn't agree to an Irish language act because agreeing to it would be like feeding crocodiles mm. and the nationalists would only come back for more. Oh, right. Essentially, in Northern Ireland, Irish isn't an official language, not like Welsh and Wales. Um, and, you know, the champions of the of the language want to change that. I take it from that voting stunt that the crocodile remark backfired a bit? 
it completely backfired. It galvanized the opposition and they adopted the crocodile as their symbol of the election. And of course, Sinn Féin and the nationalists you know, were very pleased with the result. Funnily enough, Irish is actually having a mini revival, not just among nationalists, but actually among a small number of unionists too. The thinking goes like this, you know, if you see Northern Ireland as British and Irish is an indigenous language there, well then, Irish is part of British culture as much as part of Irish culture. Yeah, of course, and uh, it's not widely recognised that there are still loads of Irish speakers in the province. Uh, but I suppose this is a common element, right, of language disputes all around the world. Languages are, are so personal and so closely linked to identity that they can be very emotive subjects and people can get fired up quite rightly about them very quickly. It's it's a way Absolutely. of... Absolutely. Uh, yeah. French in France and the encroachment of English, I'm sure you know very well. For sure, and even French in Quebec, for instance, as well. So, in my report for this episode, I spoke to Irish language researchers in different time zones, actually three different time zones, uh, to see how the language and its turbulent history affects the way people relate to the language around the world. This is the way they're singing that song now. <laughs> That's the voice of Joe Heaney. He's a singer from the Connemara region of Ireland, and that was recorded back in 1979 in New York. Today we call this kind of singing Shan Nos, which means the old style. It has a reputation of being the purest form of Irish art, but a lot of this is actually down to a kind of exoticizing outside perspective. Here's Dr. Lilith O'Leary, senior lecturer in Celtic civilization at the National University of Ireland in Galway. His recent book, Bright Star of the West, explores the Shano's style and the tradition of storytelling in Irish. And just like so many other aspects of the Irish language, he notes that Shano's singing often became tangled up with the identity politics of Ireland's independent state. Shano's uh, is a form of a cappella or unaccompanied song. Uh, it's solo and it's the way, again, probably because of poverty and the lack of instruments, it's the way that people sang uh, in kitchens for hundreds of years. And then it became something that the Gaelic League adopted as a, a pure form of Irish art in the late 19th century and throughout the 20th. The Gaelic League was a cultural organisation in the early 20th century. In fact, it's still around, but more usually known today by its Irish name, Conrad Gaelga. For them, the Irish language was a profoundly important symbol. In the years leading up to the War of Independence, they set up a whole network of cultural institutions, community events, sports, dancing, carnivals, the whole lot, all founded around a principle of promoting the language. Language revivalists spoke what they knew loudly on the streets of Dublin. Giagwich, Gurramagad, Slánawalia. The principle was Cúplafacal, or the few words, meaning that any Irish was better than none. I think it's difficult for us today to fully understand how radical this was. Under British rule, the Irish language was not seen as a good thing. On the contrary, it was provincial, barbarous, a hindrance rather than an asset. For the previous 50 years, the imperial government had tried to eliminate the language and replace it with English all over the country. In their minds, this simply represented progress. So by insisting on speaking Irish, the Gaelic League were overtly rejecting British standards of civility and British culture in general. The virtue of the language, for them, was that it was so decidedly un-British, 
It was one of the remnants of life before colonisation, and represented a sense of Irishness that didn't exist in relativity to Britain. As such, it was an incredibly effective tool of nationalist resistance. People who embraced the language were true Irishmen, according to the revivalists, while those who rejected it were pejoratively denounced as West Britons. Chirgon Tianga, they said, Chirgon Anam, a country without a native tongue is a country without a soul. The great irony of this, of course, was that revivalists often preferred their own fantasy of the language to its realities. When they went out to record the folk tales of the native speakers, mostly on the west coast, they were often shocked to hear that stories were quite sexually and morally frank. Like folk tales everywhere else, they were full of bawdy humour and dirty jokes. And the Shano songs were no different. The one you heard just now tells the story of a rich old hag. The singer calls her Kalya Kanaragad, the money witch, and tells us about the young alcoholic who's trying to marry her to get out her fortune. Here's Lilith again. Irish is other to English speakers a lot of the time. It's something that's often poorly understood, and people who habitually speak Irish view it differently. For them, for us I should say, Irish is a normal mode of communication. It's very difficult to communicate that ordinariness to people who are coming perhaps uh, from a romantic perspective that sees Irish as something perhaps that's pure, unadulterated, uh, that might be a representation of the best of Irishness. You know, that, that, that definitely has an effect on the way uh, Irish is perceived. I suppose a lot of the revivalists would have fetishized that sort of sense of strong spirituality that people had. And they emphasized that point to the exclusion of other aspects of people's character. Putting Irish on a moral pedestal in Ireland continued well after independence. For many in the Free State, Irish was the ultimate representation of Irishness, and many of the revivalists tried to cleanse it of everything they considered vulgar. Let's face it, the first words that everyone wants to know in a foreign language are usually swear words, but in the state version of Irish, even these were carefully sanitised. Instead, students studied works like the autobiography of Peg Sayers, which was so completely censored of anything considered morally or sexually dubious that it became singularly famous for being dry, bleak and boring. In one of his recent articles, Lilith O'Leary talks about one of the most high-profile cases of Irish language censorship, which happened in the 1940s. The controversy that I refer to was that of the Taylor and Anstey, two country dwellers who lived in rural Cork. And this ger English journalist, uh, Eric Cross, visited them and he wrote down many of the stories that he heard from them and presented in a book in the early 40s. And that book caused a scandal. The scandal was something of a culture clash. People in Irish-speaking regions had been, to a certain extent, cut off from Victorian standards of sexual morality, standards that still reign strong in Britain and English-speaking Ireland in the 1940s. The book's central storyteller, the tailor, Tygo Buchla, and even more controversially his wife, Anstey, whose full name, by the way, was Anastasia, had no qualms about discussing their sex life with full candour. Anstey referred to the men she met as stalls, by which she meant stallions, and at one point in the book, the tailor suggests that World War II would never have happened if fascists had followed the example of Irish peasants and spent more time enjoying the pleasures of breeding. The usual suspects came out in force against the book. The Catholic Church, of course, hit the roof, but so did the Dublin bourgeoisie, for whom Irish was supposed to be a bastion of national pride, not a smutty joke. <laughs> 
the element who was scandalized was very vocal and very persuasive and they were powerful they were some of them were senate members it led to a four-day discussion in the senate it led to a condemnation of the old couple who had given the journalists the stories in fact one priest went to them and asked them to repudiate the book and had the book burned, a copy of the book burned in front of them. The lady, Anstey, was called a moron. You know, it was really quite extreme and the book was banned and not published again until the 1960s. Even the sections quoted in the Senate were later struck from the record so that they couldn't offend anyone's eyes again. In Irish, these stories had just been part of a communal oral tradition. People had been telling stories like this for centuries. But once they were translated into English, they became lousy with political and nationalistic significance. Funnily enough, Ireland wasn't the only country in which the Irish language was being discussed in Parliament. In his recent book, Mila Mila Again, The Irish Language in Canada, the Canadian researcher Danny Doyle explores the hidden history of the language in his country. Once you become involved in the community of Irish speakers here in Canada, you realize that it's just everywhere. Like the country just has speakers all over the place. You start thinking, how could this only have recently happened? It must have been here in the history as well. And the more you get digging into it, the more you realize that there was this very, very wide uh, spread amount of Gaelic speakers, Irish and Scottish Gaelic speakers, right across Canada. Looking back at the Canadian census of 1871, which incidentally was the first of its kind since the country itself had only been established a few years before, Danny noticed that the proportion of Irish people living in Canada was astonishingly high, even after post-famine immigration was taken into account. Shocking for a lot of people is that the majority was French, but usually when people think of Canada they think that we are French and English, but what the census shows us is that we were actually one quarter Irish which outnumbered both the English one-fifth and Scottish one-sixth element in Canada. So that Can Canadians really are more of being French and Irish than they are French and English. The other really important census was 1901, which was the first one that allowed you to put down that you spoke Irish or Scottish Gaelic as your daily language. Some centres had about 22% of the population listed themselves as speaking the Irish language daily. One of the interesting parts about Danny's research is that it gives the language an alternative history. Far from trying to make it an exclusive national symbol, Irish speakers in Canada actually teamed up with Scottish Gaelic speakers, of whom there were quite a few as well. It might be noted that both languages are, to some extent, mutually intelligible. They're a bit like maybe distinct dialects of Italian. So together, these Irish speakers and these Scottish Gaelic speakers in 1890 petitioned the Canadian Parliament to make a kind of Irish-Scottish Gaelic the third national language of Canada. Unfortunately, due to Victorian attitudes towards languages, at the time they thought that languages shaped how your brain worked. English was a very powerful, obviously, empirical language. French was a very diplomatic and economic language. And the majority of senators in the room believed that the Gaelic languages were only good for witch stories and poetry. And they had one or two people saying, yes, but if we already have these other languages, wouldn't an artistic and poetic language be of use to our fledgling country? But the bill failed. It was about 49 senators voted against it compared to only six that voted for it. And it was never debated again. The alternative history stops abruptly there. 
Without a language revival, Irish in Canada was fully vulnerable to the imperial policy on minority languages. In future censuses, Danny notes that people who claimed to have spoken Irish were crossed off the official forms with pencil, and the words English written above. This came hand in hand with an education system that was designed to instill all minority languages with shame and negative connotations. Really, it was uh, a worldwide system that was under the British Empire. They did the same things in Australia against the First Nations there. Languages were, for the most part, instilled with shame and humiliation in the schools. Children were beaten to have language taken out of them and to distance them from their culture. And they all kind of took the same flavor. So the Welsh not in Wales, uh, score in Ireland, the Machacrochi if you were in Maritime Canada, the hanging stick. And they all took kind of the same idea where a stick would be notched for the infractions throughout the day, whoever would be speaking Gaelic, and you'd have to tell on someone else to pass on this stick. Whoever was wearing the stick at the end of the day would be beaten for how many infractions there were. So it created this culture in the schools that you were doing something wrong by speaking your native language. The result was that the language was all but annihilated in Canada within one generation. But that said, the story of Irish is not quite finished there either. Danny himself is part of a network of Irish speakers who are now trying to promote the language once again in Canada. Near Ontario is the only Irish-speaking region, or Gaeltacht, outside the island of Ireland. People come from all over North America and beyond to attend cultural events and competitions there. I asked him how, having become fluent, he would characterise the language for somebody who didn't know it, and this is what he said. Just the depth of language, that there are 4,400 different words in the language just for describing people. So we have words like kjartashach. A kjartashach is a person who only does the absolute bare minimum of the amount of work that they're assigned. And that's a word that is eminently useful and descriptive, but that you wouldn't find in other languages. Or something like a kushleshleifta, which is um, kushle is your heartbeat, your pulse, and shleifta is the mountainside. So kushleshleifta would be an overgrown river where you can hear it, but you can't see it. So it's the pulse of the mountain as it flows down. And these beautiful ideas that as soon as you start describing the language to people, people tend to go, I really want to learn that language. And it looks like Danny's not the only one in Canada who wants to learn the language. This is Brendan Flynn, originally from Wicklow, near Dublin, who now lives in Vancouver. I'm a structural engineering technologist by profession. I've... uh put the engineering on the back burner until I complete the monument. The monument is the Ireland-Canada monument, and Brendan's been working on getting it built for the last 12 years. He came to Canada from his hometown of Bray back in the 70s, and since then he has always wanted to create a monument for the relationship between Ireland and his adopted country. This is what he envisions for Vancouver's Wainbourne Park. We were looking to try and put up a, a shamrock, something Irish, uh, you know, points of Guinness or something like that. We wanted to make it a, a place where people could go and be as much Canadian in the site as it is Irish in the site. Uh, a wall built in the west of Ireland, you know, the old stone walls? Yeah, yeah. And uh, we started like that with the names of Irish Canadians uh, on the wall, recognising major contributions of the Irish to Canada. To raise funds for the monument, Brendan decided to take a chance on opening an Irish language school in his own house. It was a shot in the dark, especially since he wasn't even a native speaker himself. But when word got around, he was pretty shocked at how many people were interested. We began in September 2007. 
with the first class and, and 10 people showed up week after week. The teachers were the last to come to the door. The, te- the students were always first coming to the door. There was such an interest in learning the language. There was something wonderful growing in my house. Then as time went on, we realized there was so much demand in people attending the classes that we had to put on two classes and three classes. There was We had two classes running upstairs in my house and another class running in the basement all at the same time. So it's just wonderful to see it happen. Language is, our, is, our, is the core of who we are. I am not fluent, but I, I, I sit in my car going to work at 20 kilometers each way every day, and I have Buntus Concha tapes running all the time, so that the language going into my head, it might be going out the other side, but I, I feel I'm picking up something all the time. And listening to Brendan, on the other side of the world, keeping up with his cupola fuckle, sometimes it's hard to believe that this language is dying at all. As Brendan says himself, even if it goes in one ear and out the other, what else are languages for? Tim, thank you so much for that report. I thought it was fascinating and I learned a lot myself. It struck me as quite interesting just the energy and positivity about Irish that people have around the world, particularly given that, at least in my experience within Ireland, there's quite a lot of negativity about it. We both grew up learning the language ourselves, so we're definitely not unaffected by the various attitudes surrounding it. Uh, The situation has become inverted in a way because a lot of people feel ashamed today because they can't speak the language. And a lot of others resent the fact that they're even expected to, as if it makes them less Irish because they don't speak the language. Growing up near the Gaeltacht, I definitely was aware of a sharp line between native speakers and people who had learned the language as a second language. And Gaelgors have been accused of being elitist and unaccommodating to people who are making a real effort to learn. So you think it, it's not always the most welcoming a language d- to learn? I'm not sure if that can be anyone's fault, because just like anyone who speaks a language fluently, there will always be an invisible boundary between a first language speaker and a second language speaker with that ease of comfort in communication and that sense of nuance that you really probably will never get, or you'd have to be very lucky to totally get it. But the sense of exclusion is pretty unfortunate because, you know, at the same time growing up, I I witnessed the death of the language really in quite a brutal way. Like you used to go down to the shop maybe and speak to the shopkeeper in Irish or they'd speak to you and you'd reply or, or if you met an old person especially you know to, to show respect you'd speak in Irish to them uh, but then when those people started to die you just stopped speaking Irish at all even sadder I think for people like you and me it's pretty easy to forget the language very quickly once you leave the country I haven't spoken it actively now in about 15 or, or 20 years really and uh, it's hard to imagine a context where this will happen again It's really difficult to keep it up if you're not using it, and particularly if you have to learn other languages. Like, I learned Italian, and when I learned that, that was when I noticed that my Irish was, like, just pushed out of my brain. (laughs) Um, It was frightening the first time I discovered how much I'd lost. Some of my earliest memories are being taught Irish by my dad. He taught me how to count in Irish when I was a toddler. Uh Oh. Yeah. (laughs) He's quite passionate about it. I felt quite loyal to the language when I was at school, and I tried really hard at it. I grew up in Dublin, but I always struggled. I did notice a difference as soon as I went to the Gale Talk for the summer school, though. Yeah, Owen talked about that earlier, didn't he? Uh, and he said the same thing, that that's where he really learned his Irish. Maybe you can explain what it is. You live with an Irish-speaking household, 
and you have lessons in the morning and Gaelic games in the afternoon and in the evening you have a Kaylee and you're supposed to speak Irish the whole time and you're there with like 150 other teenagers and getting up to all sorts of fun. I just loved it and it became for me the first language that I could speak conversationally apart Mm. from English which was just magical to discover. I picked it up really quickly as soon as it was being spoken around me which was completely different from school. I mean do you think there's a problem with how it's taught? Right, well, that's the big question, right? If you ask any Irish person about Irish in the education system, they're going to have strong opinions on the matter either way. I think the general consensus in the Republic has been that it has been traditionally taught extraordinarily badly uh, in the school system, even though it's compulsory for everyone. But then lots of educational practice in recent decades has been pretty, pretty dire, you know? Right. Um, Yeah, so there's a tendency to blame Irish, um, I think, for the problems with the education system in general. I was speaking to one Irish teacher uh, in the lead up to that report who told me that he actually avoids telling people that he's an Irish teacher because they almost always get so aggressive with him and they basically blame him for all their unhappy memories at school that's he has terrible a, yeah he has a hard time kind of like getting across it wasn't me you know <laughs> <laughs> and more more broadly it wasn't just Irish maths were terribly taught too you know of course this isn't specifically an Irish problem either all Anglophone countries struggle to get students to learn second languages because English is the global lingua franca so you can totally avoid being exposed to other languages quite easily if you want and you know teenagers are a bit lazy so they might well do that in my experience anyway it's the day-to-day exposure and just natural working with another language that's necessary to learn it but you know funnily enough I have seen it reported that the thing that caused Martin McGuinness to decide to collapse the Northern Ireland Assembly was a decision to cut grants for poorer students to attend the Gale Talks That's really interesting because I suppose that move could have made it so much more accessible to people up there. The economic factor is an enormous consideration in the Republic too. Uh, For instance, a lot of people would think twice about enrolling their kids in an all-Irish speaking school or a Gale skull since they consider learning the language to be a kind of luxury, not a necessity, and they just don't want their children to waste their time with it. And it's also important not to forget that Irish people's version of English, Hiberno-English, is also very valuable and it's part of our heritage too. It's made a wonderful contribution to literature, for example. I totally agree. And while Irish was promoted as this pure thing, Irish accents and dialects in English were often derided as somehow kind of mongrel or or unoriginal. People still make fun of them, even within Ireland. But Hiberno-English is really unique and really beautiful mode of speech that I think we take for granted in Ireland uh, a bit. It certainly strikes me really, really strongly when I go back now how, how lyrical it is. It is. I really enjoy how people speak in Ireland, for sure. I think what makes it unique, from my understanding, is the blend of English with Irish. So Irish people sometimes use English with Irish grammatical structures. So like, I do be going or I do be doing, which is a continuous present that comes from Irish. Yeah, and you'll notice the uh, the tendency for people not to say yes or no, actually, uh, even when they're speaking English in Ireland. And that's a direct influence from Irish. You know, they'll say things like, I did or I didn't, or she went, or she didn't go. The syntax also has this great sense of suspense, which I really love, which is a direct transposition of of Irish syntax. So the object of the sentence normally comes first, and what's going to happen to the object is going to come way later in the sentence. So if you take an example in standard English, you might say, did 
you think about calling Liam? But in Hiberno-English, this would become, is it Liam, that you said you wouldn't be thinking about calling. So, you know, you're going up and down hills and valleys of emotion before you actually get to the end of the sentence. This is just a normal way to construct a sentence in Irish. But when that syntax is used in English, it's really effective. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why Hiberno-English is so good for literature. Tim, there's really so much we could say about this, but for time constraints, I think we're going to have to sign off. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm pretty sure a lot of you listening will have your own two cents to throw in because that's usually the direction this conversation goes. Yes, so do discuss among yourselves and let us know if you have any comments. So next week, we'll be tackling a rather different and somewhat awkward issue, and that is the, the curious knowledge gap in the UK about Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, This became painfully evident uh, during the recent Brexit talks and the election, as you might have noticed from our previous episodes, uh, when it became clear that not many people in the UK knew who was in control of the Northern Irish government, despite the fact that Northern Ireland is an integral part of the UK. Uh, And that knowledge gap is really quite unusual if you think about it. And now it's having major consequences for the future of the EU and for the Union itself. So to find out more, we'll be speaking to Politico journalist Harry Cooper, who has this to say on the matter. I really struggle to remember ever being taught about the Troubles. I always feel slightly embarrassed when my Irish friends jokingly, often jokingly will say, oh, you um, you awful English person, like referring to these crimes that the Brits committed in, in Ireland last in the last century. I don't know what those crimes are. We'll also be speaking to Siobhan Fenton from The Independent, who told us this. In my own experience from, from living in England uh, for quite a while, lots of people that, that I meet don't realise that Northern Ireland is in the UK. So there's a, an interview with the uh, BBC radio show recently and just before I went on, one of their researchers said to me, oh, so Unionists are the Catholics and Nationalists are the Protestants, isn't that right? Just to check before we go live. So definitely tune in for that one. In the meantime, we hope you enjoyed this Irish language episode of The Irish Passport. And if you have anything to add, we'd love to hear from you at theirishpassport at gmail.com. Or we're on Twitter at, at @passportirish, as well as our website, www.theirishpassport.com. The Irish Passport was written and produced by me, Tim McInerney. And me, Naomi O'Leary. And the songs and stories of Joe Heaney you heard in this episode were brought to you with the kind permission of Dr. Lillis O'Leary of NUI Galway. If you want to hear more of these, Lillis has uploaded a whole selection of digitalised recordings on www.joeheaney.org. And of course you'll find links to that too on our website. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>